it's easier for people who work uh, as creatives to kind of sit there and say, I just want to look at the art. Right. You know, I don't need to look at the person. I want to look at the art. Hi to all you boys and girls out there in filmmaking land. Now, as you know, Radio Film School is a documentary series, kind of like This American Life or TED Radio Hour, but devoted specifically to filmmaking and the creative arts. As a radio documentary, you seldom, if ever, hear a full interview of my guest. I just pull from each interview the sound bites and clips I need for any particular episode. But every now and then, I'll make a full uncut interview available as a bonus. And after I finished my interview with Richard Bado, or RB for short, I knew I had to post this baby. Richard is the founder and CEO of Stage 32. Think of it as LinkedIn and Linda, but for the movie business. What I like about Stage 32 is the rich social media and networking experience you get with tons of people in your industry. As of this recording, there are over half a million users from all aspects of the filmmaking biz. It's definitely worth checking out at stage32.com. If you heard volume two of my Quentin Tarantino regular episode this week, you've already heard part of my interview with RB. But naturally, we go far beyond what you heard in that episode. As most radio film school conversations go, this discussion was more about the art and soul of filmmaking. We cover topics like, how do you go about separating the artist from his or her art? Can you look at Woody Allen or Polanski films the same? Can you admire D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation for its technical achievement, despite its racist tone? And how do you feel about John Ford, the filmmaker, Leonie Gish, the actor, knowing that they were in that film? Ford actually plays a Klansman. We discuss fan films and what role they should play in today's filmmaking landscape. We get into why Citizen Kane is Arby's favorite film and whether or not it really deserves the title Best Film of All Time. We geek out over what makes a good sci-fi film. And of course, we talk about some effective strategies for using social media in the business. Remember, as a Daredreamer FM member, you get additional bonus resources like this, as well as templates, ebooks, and more tools to help you grow in your craft and your career. All for a low monthly price less than a large cup of gourmet coffee. Just head on over to daredreamer.fm slash join to learn more. Alright, with all that out of the way, let's get into my full-length interview with RB from Stage32.com. Tell me a little bit about you know yourself. Like, how did um, uh, Stage Thirty Two come about? Like, how long ago? And was it one of those like mother necessity type of things that kind of led to what it is today? Or yeah, did, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because there's, there's a lot of different avenues. It, it kind of goes back. The the embryonic, I guess, idea goes all the way back um, to when I was acting in New York, you know, over a decade ago, um, and. Uh, they're really, really the only thing that was available at the time, maybe a little bit more than a decade ago was, you know, was a uh, Friendster. There wasn't a, even a Facebook at that time. And, um, you know, you, you had to have contacts, you had to have champions to get jobs or you had to go in kind of cold and audition that always stayed with me. Um, and then I went off to, to run a magazine called razor for a while and which, you know, I, I ran out of LA and we had offices in uh, New York and Toronto and, uh, I was around the film industry the whole time. And, dealing with people, um, in the business who, uh, were very established and hearing their stories of how they kind of accomplished what they accomplished, um, 
And it was interesting because, again, it was a lot of it was word of mouth. A lot of it was who they knew as opposed to what they knew or how talented they were. So that stayed with me in the years after Razor. And then I kind of went into film producing. I was producing, I was involved with a film that went to Sundance in 2011 that had pretty good cast, you know, Ellen Barkin, uh, Demi Moore, Thomas Hayden Church, uh, Ellen Bernstein, Kate Bosworth, Ezra Miller. Um, and, you know, we filmed the thing in Michigan with the, an independent film crew, you know, a local film crew. And, uh, you know, you spend time in an independent film set with people and, it's like summer camp and you, uh, you get to know these people and you know, you promise that you're going to stay together forever. Like you would at the end of summer camp. And then you go your separation, never hear from anybody right. until somebody needs a job. So people would call me when the tax credits, you know, dried up in, in Michigan and the filming kind of dried up and everything kind of moved down to Louisiana and New Mexico and so on and so forth. People were looking to move out to LA to get jobs. And I was like, you know, again, I, I could recommend you, but you know, these you know, you gotta, you gotta get into your community. You gotta be out there networking for yourself as well. A lot of these people that are established have their tribes. Um, that stayed with me as well, because, you know, how are these people in Michigan going to network with people in LA? And, you know, at this point, the broad based social media sites like Facebook were out there, but, you know, I was out there working those things as an actor and as a writer and as a producer, and I wasn't getting anything out of it. And then, you know, the business, um, networks like LinkedIn were doing nothing for me as a creative at all. In fact, it was just a monumental waste of time for me as a creative. So, you know, I had the idea for this in 2009. I felt that the next wave of social media platforms was going to be uh, niche social media platforms. And I believed that there needed to be one for the film industry. And it took, my, it took me about two years to convince myself to do it. But in 2011, I built, the, built out the first phase of it and went to 100 of my industry friends and asked them to join and uh, asked them, you know, if they liked it to invite five fellow creatives and here we are about four and a half years later and that one you know that hundred people the original hundred has now turned into about six hundred thousand so it's been a uh tremendous ride and a very rewarding ride and um very proud of what we've accomplished that's an amazing story uh the idea of understanding and seeing ahead of time that you know there are these other social media outlets that are out there but we need to kind of like go focus on the film industry. Um, so would you say then that, cause one of the things I want to talk to you about, like was how creatives can use social media today. And, you know, is there uh, a benefit to using the, you know, the Twitters and the social, I mean, the Facebooks and the tumblers of the world or uh, yeah, are, are these niche sites like what you're doing with stage 32, the best way to go. I'm sure the answer is a little bit of all of it, but like, Kind of elaborate on that, if you will. Kind of comment yeah, on that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, I, I personally believe, I'm not saying this because I run Stage 32, but I, I think that when you're talking, if I could take it from this direction so it doesn't seem that I'm being self-serving, if your objective as a film creative is to meet other film creatives and to get your work seen, it stands to reason that the best opportunity to do that is to be on a network where everybody that's on the network uh, is a film creative as well and works in the space. My problem with broad-based social media sites like Facebook, for example, is that I just found that you know I was getting approached by people. I had a lot of people in my network that were friends and family, you know, high school friends, acquaintances, people from other industries that I worked in, like you know when I was running the magazine. And it was very difficult for me to sit there, for example, and and get advice on 
my latest screenplay or, you know, talk to somebody about the industry because I would get inundated with other people kind of pushing their stuff towards me. The, so I made a decision early on that the only other social media site I was going to be on, for example, or for me anyway, was Twitter. And the reason why I liked Twitter was because of the direct access, because you can go, you know, you can reach anybody at any time. And I also like the fact that you can engage because I think social media, you know, people lose the meaning of social media. They forget that the first word is social and, you know, they kind of go into it like it's broadcast media and they end up broadcasting and just pushing out their own agenda without building relationships. And that's what it's all about. So with Twitter, I was able to go out there and build relationships and it is, you know, to answer to go to your original question or to speak to your original question, which is, is it important? It's monumentally important. I'm in the middle of, uh, well, I'm actually finally at almost the end of writing the very first book on film crowdsourcing for um, Focal Press. And the whole idea is that, you know, as film creators, we need to be out there. I don't care if you're an actor, I don't care if you're a writer, uh, a filmmaker, a producer, it doesn't matter. You have to be out there establishing your brand and establishing who you are and establishing what you're looking to accomplish. And you need to be out there building your network, especially in this day and age where people are being signed, you know, based on being recognized on social media and having their work seen on social media. It's more important than ever. And it's getting it, it will be increasingly important as we move forward here. You know, CAA just signed a whole bunch of, you know, YouTube stars the other day, um, you know, with big followings. You know, they, they, they like the people that have the talent, but they also like the people that come with a built in following. So I think that it's really, really important, monumentally important. However, comes with this caveat. You don't want to be on too many platforms. You don't want to spread yourself too thin. And you don't want to delude yourself into thinking that more is better. It's it's quality uh, quality over quantity when it comes to social media. You need to dedicate the time. I always say, look, man, I spend half of my creative day. If I, if I dedicate let's say four hours to, a cre- to, to my creativity on a given day, two hours will go into my writing, let's say if I'm in the middle of a script, and two hours will go into networking because it's that important. Everything good that has happened to me over the last four years, and that includes landing a couple of acting jobs, landing my screenplay manager, selling a screenplay, um, optioning another screenplay, producing the film that went to Sundance, I'm in the middle of producing another documentary and another film after that, Every single one of these things came from social media. It came from state. Actually, they all came, and I'm not lying in the least about this. They all came from Stage 32. They all came from networking on Stage 32. And these weren't things that came to me because I run the platform. These are things that came to me because I work the site constantly. I'm just like everybody else. I think one of the beautiful things about Stage 32 and one of the reasons why it's so successful, and you'll see this if you do sign up, and it's free to sign up, by the way. If you do sign up, you'll see my mug on your wall with a welcome message. And the first thing I basically say is, I'm no different than you. I'm scratching and clawing every day like you are, you know, and it's a never ending battle, but we're all in it together and we're nothing without support. And that's the whole, you know, the whole kind of drive behind the community, you know, is support, education, access, all of it. Um, and that's why it's been so successful. That's awesome. I, I love the fact that, um, there's like a singular purpose in terms of being able to, connect with other people who are like-minded or, you know, who are also creatives, people who are trying to kind of do the same things you're trying to do and connect with the kind of people that you're, that you're connecting with. Um, what, what's the significance behind the name stage 32? Uh, it's interesting you ask that. It, it's, 
It comes from I'm a big Austin Wells fan. I'm a big believer in collaboration and support. I, I believe that I, you know it's the breath that you know it's the air that we breathe as creatives. If we don't have that, we have nothing. And I'm a big Orson Welles fan. Um, I think that history has not been kind to Orson Welles. I think that he's kind of seen as, you know, an egomaniac or a megalomaniac um, today, but, you know, or is known as the wine guy <laughs> by some people today. But if you read some of the biographies um, and some of the stories that were written about him in, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, you'll see that he really was a true collaborator. He really solicited ideas and, and, um, was very, very interested in getting the opinions of others when putting together, you know, movies like Kane and, um, Ambersons and, uh, you know, on and on. He, he, uh, filmed, Citizen Kane was filmed on the old RKO 17 soundstage, which is now Paramount stage 32. And that's the, the, uh, symbolic, uh, nature behind why I chose that name. So if you go to stage 32 on the Paramount lot, right outside the, uh, the front door or the, or the stage door, you'll see a plaque with the movies that were filmed on Paramount stage 32. And, and the top one is, uh, citizen Kane and, um, Chinatown was also filmed there. So added bonus. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I'm a, I'm Orson Welles fan. What, what's your favorite Wells film? You know, I, I still, I, I, I hate to be this way, but I still go back to Kane. I still love it. I mean, I'm a big touch of evil fan as mm-hmm. well. I love touch of evil. Um, I just think it's brilliant. Uh, but you know, there's just something about Kane that, you know, it's, it's, we, we say, we say things that are overrated and, you know, we use that word a lot and, you know, I know it's been applied to that movie sometimes, but, but it really, it, to me, it's just not, no matter how much I watch it, it's not overrated. I just think it's brilliant and brilliantly constructed and, uh, brilliantly acted and shot everything about it. And, you know, it was a pathway film to so many others. So, uh, it's hard for me to knock that one off the perch. What do you, what is it about that film do you think particularly makes it stand apart? Well, I mean, I think when you, you know, when you look at what he accomplished at such a young age. He was like 24 or something, right? Yeah, 24, 26, something along those lines. I mean, when you think about what he accomplished and, and of course, the enormous pressure that he was under from the studio. But when you look at the fact that, you know, he acted and some of some people will argue that he, you know, obviously he shared a writing credit. But a lot of people say Mankiewicz, you know, conceded that. Um, but he certainly directed it and, um, you know, uh, acted as a cinematographer on it as far as, you know, you, you just look at all the behind the scenes photos and you see that he was in the mix of every single thing. But then what, but the thing that, the thing that's beautiful about it, I think as well, and, you know, we talked earlier about tribe and have knowing your tribe, he took a lot of his, you know, radio players that had never, you know, worked on film before and brought him with, brought them with him to be in that film and the chemistry I think is undeniable. So, so many things about that film click. I mean, clearly if you're a film student, there's so much to get out of it, but I just think if you're a casual film fan, it's undeniable. The, um, the talent on display, the storytelling on display. And I think it's got some universal themes, of course, you know, the, the having it all and losing it is better to have had it and never have it at all you know, uh, loneliness, success. I mean, there's so many different things going on in that film power, um, that every time, I mean, I've probably seen it 20, 25 times. And and every time I watch it, I do discover something new. Uh, so I just think that that's one of the reasons why it stands. It's just an incredibly well done film. Do you remember the last new thing you saw in it Or or the last thing that you remember new that stood out to you? I think, yeah, I think that the last thing that stood out to me, um, was a lot of his deep 
framing. I, you know, he does a lot of what the differences in the framing. He does a lot of um, uh, deep focus uh, framing in his in his films, and 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 particularly in Kane. I think his use of the camera and the use of the set to uh, um, denote power. You know, to show him in, I mean, it's, there's some obvious scenes that you see the first time you see it, you know, the way he right. takes powers over Marion and stuff like that. But there's other scenes in this movie with the low ceilings and the, and I guess that every time I see it, sometimes you get caught, so caught up in the storytelling that you don't look at the technical aspects of it. And, and some, the last few times I've watched it, I tried to watch it different every single time I've watched it from a writing standpoint. I've watched it from a filmmaking standpoint, a staging standpoint, an acting standpoint, which, you know, that's the other thing that stands out to me all the time is that. You know, of course, it's got that a little bit of that 40s over the top acting, you know, that style, the grand style, almost the theater, theatrical style, um, like they're playing to the back row. But to me, it's that chemistry. And, you know, I started as an actor, like I said, so, you know, acting is reacting, that whole entire thing. When you watch what's going on around Wells when he's kind of taking over a scene and watch with the, 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 the other actors faces and how they react to him. And, uh, I just find it fascinating. They're so professional. Uh, it's such a professional cast that it, it just never ceases to amaze me. And what will end up happening is sometimes, like I said, I'll go in like one of the recent times I watched that I kind of wanted to look at it more from a filmmaker standpoint, but I'll get pulled out, you know, looking at the actors or being caught up in, in a, the construction of a scene. And, um, it's just it, that's the beauty of that film, and that's why I think you know to answer your question even earlier again, why it stands is because there's always something else to kind of discover with that film. One of the, I mean, one of the things that you know that film has been known for as being you know at the top of the list of one of the greatest films of all time. Um, you know, setting your 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 uh, your love for Wells aside, I mean, do you think it earns that moniker? I mean, I think recently it was bumped off at least the sight and sound list by uh, I think it was Hitchcock's Vertigo. Vertigo, right? Yeah. But um, but regardless, do you think it do you think it deserves that title? I think it does in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, if you ask me, I would alternate between the, the, the and I'd always go back and forth on these two, too. The first two Godfather movies, I think they're both brilliant. Oh, yeah. Really genius. But, uh, and I'm a huge Raging Bull fan. And, you know, I can go on and on. But, I, uh, you know, uh, Casablanca, there's so many. But I do think that just because, and I mean, you could look at it from two different ways. Again, if you're a film fan, you might not think it's the, the best film of all time. You might go a different way. Um, but for me, being able to look at all the aspects that, you know, we just spoke about, I don't know. I just can't. There are films that are, I would say, kind of equally brilliant. But because that was so groundbreaking at the time um, and so well realized for somebody at such a young age, especially for a first film, uh, you know, it's hard to it's hard to think of any debut that was as masterful as that. Uh yeah, I think it tops the list, or at least it's, you know, depending on what day I wake up, you know, it's either one, one A or two. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but yeah, I do think it stands the test of time and I do think it deserves its stature. Are you are you familiar with uh Birth of a Nation, the original? Yes. yes. The original, yeah. Yeah. So uh that film is another one that is heralded a lot because of all of the new techniques that Griffith used in that. Um, what are your thoughts about that film and what it means in the 
world of what it means for cinema history, but also, you know, that vis-a-vis the the messages that it, you know, it communicated back then. Well, I mean, clearly an incredibly racist film. I mean, I think if you, depending on the way you look at it, I mean, if you're going to look at it from a technical standpoint, as you mentioned, I mean, there are some genius things within the film that he did, but, you know, clearly um, I don't think it's a film that stood the test of time because of, of um, or has been as popular or maybe, in fact, I can't even remember. I don't think I've seen it since film school um, or film class, I should say. Um, it's been so long. And it's kind of interesting because I got to see uh, Birth of a Nation, the um, the Nate Parker movie up at, at Sundance. Right. And people were – it was interesting to hear people talk about uh, D.W. Griffith's, you know, Birth of a Nation, you know, obviously came back into into the mix and, and you know, kind of bubbled back up again because of the, of the title of this film. Uh, obviously, neither one has anything to do with the other. But um, it, it was interesting to hear people talk about it. And, you know, I, we live in a – clearly we live in a very PC world now where we're going to um, – we're going to an- break down and analyze every single piece of, of everything – it's just on. I mean, there's you just we can paint this with a broad brush. It was racist. It's a racist film. It's you know, it's got terrible stereotypes. It's got everything you know, reflective of the nation at that time. I can't answer that. Um, you know, certainly there have been uh, articles and dissertations written about it, but I, I don't think that it's the type. I think that when we talk about films that are going to be taught in film schools going forward or in film classes going forward, I think that when we're going to be when we're talking about the classics. We're going to be talking about the Canes and the Casablancas and you know uh, the Searchers and movies like that. I don't and you know if we're going to go into the silent era, we're going to be talking about Chaplin and Keaton and you know that those are the ones that are going to stand the test of time. And then of course the new classics, um, you know from the, from a more recent era are going to be the the ones that people are going to be looking at. I don't I don't think that Birth of a Nation is going to have that kind of. Uh, I think it's lost a lot of stature. You don't hear a lot of people talking about it anymore, especially when I, you know, on stage 32, we have a ton of film students on the site. And, you know, when I speak to them about what they're watching, it, it very rarely comes up, if ever, actually. Right, right. Um, well, I find it interesting, like, when you look at some of the cast, um, like Lillian Gish is in it, and, yeah. and John Ford plays a Klansman. Yes, um, right, yeah. Wow, I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, so it makes you wonder, like, are the, are they sympathetic with the messages that were in that film? You wonder. You want I you wonder a lot about that film because it's so blatant and so over the top and so even for you know again you you, you know I watched this generations after it was made but you, your jaw hits the floor and you wonder what the hell everybody was thinking <laughs> you know yeah. you know I, I you just wonder what the hell everybody was thinking I mean I I just don't know and it's funny because the people that you mentioned weren't really tied to any other sort of, um, you know, racist movements or, exactly. you know, religious movements or anything like that. So you wonder, I mean, it really is, a, it really is kind of an interesting question to ask. And I don't know, I actually don't know this at all. If, if there's any sort of definitive, uh, account of it out there, if there's been any books written or anything, I'm sure there have, but I haven't seen them, but it'd be interesting to kind of see if there've been interviews with, you know, either relatives or, you know, kids or grandkids or whatever, uh, that might speak to that. I have no idea. You know, that brings up an interesting topic that's always fascinated me, RB. I want to get your take on. What is your take on separating the art from the artist? 
and, and I bring it up because this has come up before. When you have artists who, in their personal lives, maybe do things that a person may seem, a person may think is you know really dreadful, you know, or you know think about, you know, Woody Allen hasn't had mm-hmm. you know the most upstanding uh, life in terms of some of the things he's done. But his art is deniable. Or obviously another one that comes to mind is his name is escaping me now. Oh, Roman Polanski. Polanski, right. sure. Yeah. Right, right. Um, you know, and so um, in this particular case, you have D.W. Griffith. And um, a few weeks ago, I was listening to um, the You Must Remember This podcast. And the episode was about uh, Walt Disney and his um, his supposed or alleged or maybe not so alleged Nazi sympathies. And so mm-hmm. you hear about stuff like this. Uh, and, you know, for some of the ones that you, you know, for some people like the Disney's or the D.W. Griffiths or the John Ford's, where maybe you had a certain image of them before and you hear about something that kind of makes you scratch your head or about more contemporary filmmakers like the Woody Allens who do work that, you know, some of my favorite films are Woody Allen films that, and, and so for you personally, like, what are your thoughts on art versus the artist? And do you ever – have you ever been in a position where an artist has done something so bad where you couldn't get into their art? It's a great question. And, it, and it's a tough question because, you know, there are things that are so reprehensible sometimes that you sit there and it gives you pause. You know, mm-hmm. and, and you brought up Woody Allen, which is really interesting because – uh, I just literally, I think it was a couple of days ago, I was uh, at the gym working out and I was, I was on the, uh, you know, doing some cardio or whatever and Annie Hall was on and, you know, I, again, it's another one of these films, one of my favorites and I could watch it a billion times and laugh every time and I have to say that at one point, you know, in, and I can't remember at what point in the story it was, but it was, you know, there were, the sex talk was going on between him and Annie and whatever and, it, you know, I had that moment where I thought about, you know, what he had gone through. And it's Mm -hmm. a shame that that in some ways it's a shame that that enters your mind because you want to look at art, you know, kind of through an unfiltered lens. I mean, you want to see it clearly and you want to see it the way that you, you want to, you want to sort of uh, digest it, you know, on, on your own terms. And we live, especially now we live in a world where, you know, accessibility is so insane and, and, you know, what has become acceptable as far as being able to, you know, penetrate people's lives and um, have access to people's lives, even for those, I mean, many people are willing participants in this, but there are many that aren't, um, is, you know, so over the top and so crazy that, you know, it, we've kind of blurred the lines between what is morally acceptable and what isn't even from, you know, a, uh, a reader or a viewer standpoint in a way, right. I, you know, what, what, what should be news and what shouldn't be news. So, it's it's difficult for me, you know, to answer that question in a lot of ways because I feel like there's also this aspect in my mind of you know, listen, we all, we, none of us, you know, the, not to get biblical, but none of us are without sin. You know <laughs> right, I mean? right. We all we all have our faults. We've all done things we're not proud of. I'm sure, um, you know. So how do you sit there and judge? You know what I mean? And, and what unless it's you know unless obviously it's blatant breaking of the law. You know, the Polanski situation, obviously, I have a little bit more of a problem with, even though she, even though she's kind of, uh, you know, forgiven him, you know what I mean? And, and right. there's that whole entire thing, too. I mean, like, what's your threshold for forgiveness? What's your threshold for understanding? 
you know, my feeling is art is art. Um, you know, if, if the artist, you know, kind of, I don't know, you know, crosses your threshold for, you know, wrong or right or what's tolerable, then, you know, it's, it's a personal choice not to, uh, consume that person's art or view that person's art. I, you know, for me, I try to separate it out as much as I can. Like, you know, the D.W. Griffith thing is a perfect example. I mean, can I look at it from the standpoint of, can I look at some of the, the, um, the advances that, that he made with that film from a technical standpoint and be wowed by it? Yeah, of course I can. But, you know, is it a film that I want to sit through? No. You know what I mean? Is it a film that I agree with? Of course not. Um, you know, so it, 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 I guess it kind of cuts both ways, but I think it really comes down to a personal, uh, you know, your personal threshold for, for, you know, what the artist, you know, what, what kind of, uh, transgression, I guess the, the artist, uh, committed. Yeah, no, I, I actually agree a hundred percent with you, especially when you, you talked about, you know, not judging, uh, and I've written about this before, where, you know, we've all done something that is, you know, questionable. Obviously, there are different degrees, you know, in terms of what people have done. But, like, no one's, you know, uh, pure, you know, white as snow. Right. In terms of uh, where they where they sit. And so, you know, definitely, if you're a person who's coming from a very judgmental place, I think that's an issue. Um I think work. I I think work can become difficult to separate it, and you kind of alluded to this with Alan, is where aspects of whatever it is, where aspects of their alleged transgression, kind of shows up in their art. Yeah. So, um, for me with Alan, I think even a stronger example is Manhattan, where right. the where so, that character is having a relationship with, um, uh, the. Uh, Mario Hemingway. Yeah. Right, the Hemingway character. And I think she, I don't know, I don't remember if she's 18. No, I think she's seven. I think she's turning 17 or she's 17. Yeah, it's something like that. Like yeah. that. Um, and I don't know if you remember, do you remember the movie Powder? I do, but it was it was a long, I only, yeah. Seen, yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was early 90s. I remember seeing it in college. So it may have even been like late 80s, early 90s. But I remember... Like, I remember the big hoopla over that movie when it came out. It was a Disney film. It was about this, for those, you know, who may not have seen it, it's about this, you know, this um, this boy who has these special powers, powers, you know, he's essentially an albino, but he has powers over electricity and he's misunderstood and he can remember every aspect of his life, even from before he was born. Um, so it's actually a really powerful and touching film, but I remember there was a lot of hoopla because the director was a convicted molester, child molester. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was sort of like preceding the news about the film itself. In fact, that Disney would hire someone like that. And that was the question everyone was talking about. But I remember going to see that film and then there's the scene, I believe Jeff Goldblum's in it. And there's this kind of scene where Jeff Goldblum's alone with the the powder kid and it has these kind of weird overtones between this grown man and this, you know, skin, this hairless adolescent boy. And you can't help but think about the writer director behind it. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't, you know, the movie never really did that well. And, but you know, it's when stuff like that happens that make you go, Ooh, I don't know, that's kind of. 
It's I, I get you. I think it's yeah. I, I think that one of the problems, though, I think this is another another thing that, you know, having come from a magazine background and, mm-hmm. and editing a magazine, you know, we we had very, very high journalistic standards and, and fact checking. And we were you know, we were big on integrity and, and everything like that. You know, clearly today, that's not the case. And, <laughs> you know, what happens I think the shame of it too, and it's something that a rational person or a person that really wants to see things um, from, you know, with the, with the complete sort of 360 worldview, you have to take some things with a grain of salt, and you also mm-hmm. have to you also have to search. Kind of, if you're really going to judge, you really have to search for the truth, and and it's very very difficult in today's media to do that because the first headline is always the one that gets the most attention, and it's a complete rush to judgment. Uh, in our society and other societies, um, when somebody is called out on the carpet for something or – and you don't know. It could be a half-truth. It could be a quarter-truth. It could be a three-quarter truth. You don't know. And you know. so I think that sometimes it's, it's – another reason why I like to try to separate it out as much as possible is because – not only because I don't want to judge – but because I don't really believe that I know the full story. You right. know, God right. knows that there have been things said about me through the years – uh, you know, via social media or, you know, through business contacts or whatever that were, you know, absolutely false that, you know, people were coming on, oh my God, I can't believe like, you know, and then you have to kind of defend you, you know, you're guilty till proven innocent. And I think that there's a lot of that in our society today. So I think that, you know, you have to be careful with it. I think the one thing that's really interesting now is I think that the scandals today, because the, the media cycle is so freaking fast and everybody wants to move on to the next thing, I think that if you have a scandal today, it's a hell of a lot different than if you had a scandal 10, 15, 20, you know, certainly 50 years ago, um, where, you know, the longevity of that and the stigma of it kind of stuck to you. I think, you know, in today's world, I think people are uh, – the attention to the, the, your attention is diverted in so many different places and, of right. course, you're getting more media thrown at you than ever before that – uh, I think people are just, it's not even a matter of being forgiving. I just think people have gotten, you know, have gotten numb. I mean, you look at a guy like Tom Cruise and, and you look at everything that happened with the Scientology, um, you know, things over the years. And then of course, uh, uh, Ghibli's film last year and, uh, you know, the, uh, or Ghibli's film, I should say, and, and how, um, everybody thought, Oh my God, this is going to bring him down. This is going to, and you know, his next film opens and it opens 50 million, 60 million, <laughs> 70 million. I mean, you know. You know, people are. I, I think there are the, the, the main the majority of people, even after seeing that film, are just sitting there going, "Look, if it's entertainment, it's entertainment." That's not to say there's a segment that's going to sit there and say, "I will never go to a Tom Cruise movie again," because of, of course there is. Right. Um, but again, I think it just comes down to a personal choice, and and I think that I do think that, and I um, I think you would agree with this. You know, even because you said you've talked to you you've uh, had this conversation, uh, you know, other times. I do think with artists that artists are more. It's easier for people who work uh, as creatives to kind of sit there and say, I just want to look at the art. Right. You know, I don't need to look at the person. I want to look at the art. Yes. Um, because we could sit here from the beginning of time and, and talk about the faults and the and the uh, the transgressions of artists. I mean, it's, you know, throughout history. So, uh, you know, I mean, look. I, I, was just, I was just saying this the other night. It was just, you know, I was down at South by Southwest and – um, I was at a, uh, a, a waiting for a concert to start and, um, Biz Markey of all people was DJing and he, um, 
put on like three Michael Jackson songs in a row and people went bananas. And I mean, God knows there's been enough stories about Michael Jackson and you kind of sit there and you say, okay, nobody's thinking about that. Right. I mean, and it's, it's interesting because it's the Woody Allen example again. It was hard for me at one point listening to the songs not to think about all the accusations and, and the alleged settlements, you know, uh, you know, and on and on. So it's, but you know, everybody else in the crowd, 2000 strong were, you know, jumping and bopping and <laughs> right. So I don't know. I don't know. I just think it comes down again, you know, coming full circle to your personal threshold. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one artist we've been talking about, uh, who said his fair share of being a provocateur is, a uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. Um, and particularly his use of the N word and, um, and the way he treats women in the, and, and, in film. Mm -hmm. And, um, and one thing I found interesting is that, and I've talked with this with a couple other guests, like, you know, take the N word issue, um, mm -hmm. or, or both issues, you know, the, the portrayal of women. Mm -hmm. I think Tarantino has written some of the most iconic and I think, strong both african-american and women characters in cinema what are mm -hmm. your, th your thoughts and then your thoughts on that do you i mean do you agree with that for one and then two your thoughts on the 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 female and the african-american characters he creates um yeah. reconciled against uh you know his use of the n-word or how women are treated in his films well, I, first of all, I agree with you 100% that I think that he has created some of the most iconic characters, dialogue, situations. I mean, um, infinitely watchable or rewatchable um, films. You know, some of his, some of the later stuff. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of Hateful Eight. Um, I, you know, I thought it went a little bit too long. I thought, you know, it was, I thought he could have used an overpowering editor in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, I had no problem with the Jennifer Jason Lee character in mm -hmm. Hateful Eight. I actually found her, I actually enjoyed her character the most. I thought she was the, the you know, the best thing about that film in a lot of ways. Um, I get why people wanted to jump on that but i do think it's a little bit of this pc world thing again and i mm -hmm. think if you look at some of his other films or if you look at like the kill bills and i mean uma thurman couldn't have been more lovingly portrayed i mean they, i mean obviously she gets the living hell kicked out of her but i mean she couldn't have been more lovingly shot filmed um portrayed in 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 that movie you know as far as the n-word and everything like that i think he does get a, a little bit over the top i think that when he did, you know, Pulp Fiction and, you know, Jackie Brown to an extent. I think there was a sort of an organic, you know, nature to it. And also, you know, it was this sort of, it should never be organic in real life, I'm saying in the art. But I'm saying, in, you know, as far as that, as far as the writing was concerned and what he was trying to, I think, get across in the art, um, it was original in its own way. But I, I think, you know, I, I, I certainly can see the argument when people say now it's for the sake of doing it and now it's for the sake of shock and everything like that. When I look at, you know, this brings us back to that art, you know, art versus everything else conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, when I look at somebody like Samuel L. Jackson coming back again and again and again and defending him uh, and defending the art and talking about, you know, why he feels it's necessary and, and, you know, the conversations he's had with him, I can't in any way, shape or form, uh, proclaim to know any better, you know what I mean? Or proclaim to know what, you know, 
declare, you know, uh, any other. Well, I can't say, look, I don't know what goes on in those conversations. All I know is that Samuel Jackson comes back and wants to work with him time and time again. Right. Um, you know, other, uh, African-American actors have defended him to the wall. Um, I just haven't enjoyed the last couple of movies to be, you know, to be blunt. I just mm-hmm. think that it's been a little bit over the top, you know, but you know, I mean, this is the, this is sort of the brand that he's created for himself. I, maybe he feels that if he goes another way, people are going to think that he's bowing to pressure. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what goes on in his head. You know, um, we all know he's a strong willed and strong opinion person. And, you know, regardless of what he did with this thing with, with the police and everything like that, wherever you fall on that side of the issue, he's going to beat his own, you know, obviously he's going to beat his own trail no matter what, uh, anybody says about him. So, you know, he is what he is. And again, it's up to us as, you know, consumers of art to decide whether we want to take it in or not. Right. I vaguely heard something about the police thing. What was the deal about that? Well, I mean, he, you know, spoke out against police violence and racism and, and, you know, condemned, uh, you know, the cops and did a couple of, of, you know, uh, speeches and everything like that. And then the, you know, the NYPD and a bunch of other police departments basically said they were boycotting his films and everything, you know, uh, Weinstein, you know, one day said he knew he was going to do it. One day said he wasn't going to do it. But the point of the matter is, is that whatever his, listen, again, it's exactly what we were talking about earlier. If you, you can't, control somebody's opinion and you shouldn't have to stifle somebody's opinion you know living in this country that's that's one of the beautiful things about living in this country is that you you know you get to voice your opinion at least to an extent and uh although that seems to be going away little by little but i mean you know uh that's part of it so i mean you know again you don't have to like him as a filmmaker and there were plenty believe me i was on I can't tell you how many, you know, I, I consume a lot of uh, entertainment news uh, or film industry news or, you know, read all the trades and everything like that. And you go right. into the comment section of these things and, you, you know, you'll see a lot of people who say, I will never go see a Tarantino movie again. I will never go, you know, uh, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's over the top. He's this, he's racist. He's, you know, it's, I, it's part and parcel of putting yourself out there. You know, again, it, it's what people are going to tolerate and what people aren't going to tolerate. And, and it's an individual choice. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and you know, one of um, one of the persons I interviewed uh, was commenting on because Tarantino at some point said that you know his use of that word is he wanted to um, take power away from the word, and uh, the person I interviewed said something along the lines of perhaps we shouldn't take power away from it. And, uh-huh. he, and he talked about, you know, if he has, and this person is, is, is white. We said, you know, if he had kids and they watched the movie about slavery or something, and if they heard the slave master using that word, if the power was taken away from it, and the kid might just say, oh, you know, why is he so bad? He's just using a regular word or whatnot. You can't, it loses its power. Or when things that shouldn't lose their power lose their power, like if someone is, you know, being sleeping around and, and, not being, you know, sexually careful, you know, sex is something that's powerful that if you take it lightly, you can actually lose your life of it. Um, or you use a gun as another example. And, and so he was equating that word or not equating it, but posing the question that maybe that word is something that shouldn't lose its power. Your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's an interesting argument, but I could take it the other way. I mean, okay. you, you could sit there and say, look, it, it, you know, sex is power, right? So, but the result of getting, let's like say, a, you know, a sexual, sexually transmitted disease, I mean, 
that's uh, cause and effect in its own way, right? Mm -hmm. If if you're teaching your kids, you know, if you're showing your kids this material, it could go either way. Is it going to go that it loses its power or is it going to go that it's accepted? And if it's accepted, then we can go back to the sex, the cause and effect thing. And if, if this kid goes out and uses that word mm -hmm. and gets the living hell kicked out of him, <laughs> uh, that's not taking away the power. Right. That's sort of enabling. So, I, I, you know, I think it's a dangerous game when we sit here and we say – I've seen him, by the way, I've seen him speak about this argument and, and I've seen him you know, talk about this and I have a problem with it because I think that, you know, whenever you give somebody access to something, you are basically telling them that they have carte blanche to use it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I think the more something is accessible, the more that it's in the mainstream, uh, the more that people... Uh, hear or see or whatever, the more that they, the more that they think it's okay. And I think that that's the other side of that argument. I think that, you know, I mean, I could sit here as, you know, I, I hopefully, you know, I'll take this lightly maybe, but as a mature adult mm -hmm. and kind of sit there through a movie like The Hateful Eight and hear that word over and over and over again and almost take it at this point, you know, 10, eight films into his career right. as sort of like a cartoonish, Sort of Tarantino sitting as I could just picture him as typewriter, like you know, grinning maniacally, you know, going oh n word n word n word n word, you know, and and, right. and you know, you feel it when you're sitting in the theater. You just kind of go like, oh my god, like you know, it's it's you know, how many more times? How many more times? But that's somebody, you know, that's if you're a 15 year old kid, you know, and you get your hands on it and. You know, is that acceptable? You know, is it is it going to be acceptable for me as a fifteen year old kid? Is it? You know, I'm hearing it so many times, and I know the writer is white. You know, is that okay for me to go out and and use this word? And of, of course, the answer is no. But how do how does a fifteen year old know that? And right. I think that that's the dangerous part of that, or the you know certainly the other side of it, but also the dangerous. Um, uh, counter to that to that argument, you know that that it's it's taking away the power, and, and in my opinion, it could be very empowering. I think it just depends on the maturity and the the it could you know in a lot of ways it also depends on the geography of the person, you know where the person grows up, oh, how sure. they grow up, you know it, it depends on economic you know stature and 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 uh, factors, you know it, there's so many different things that play into that. So that's kind of a broad brush thing for me, and and I don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a great point. Um, are you going to turn the tables a little bit, uh, or not turn the tables, but change the topic a little bit, but again, still dealing with provocative issues as they relate to art. Um, mm -hmm. Have you followed at all or familiar with the Star Trek Axnar case? I do. I know. I know. I'm not going to say I'm an expert on it, but I know enough to be dangerous about it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so for those listening, and I'll you know, Star Trek XNR is a fan film, and there have been plenty of Star Trek fan films around. But this particular one has raised over a million dollars to make it, and it actually stars some recognizable um, cast. Kate Vernon, who is in Battlestar Galactica, is in it. Some of the people who have actually played in old Star Trek films are in it. Some, so recognizable actors are in it, and the production values are off the hook. And they were actually sued by CBS and Paramount. And um, so, I, I, you know, with the, st the state of fan film, fan filmdom has been around for decades. And, you know, I think 
you know, when you have fan films that look like, you know, homemade movies or they're just barely better than, you know, film school quality, it's easy for a studio to turn the other way. But when you have a film like Axanar or a few years ago you had the big Power Rangers film um, by Joseph Kahn uh, that came out and you get into these um, – you get into a, like this whole new realm where the copyright holders actually start suing the fans. I would love to get your take on that on that issue, like wh- your thoughts on fan films in general and this copyright issue. Because on one hand, it is black and white. It is another company's copyright. Like there's no debating that. But then you have the strong argument that fan films are something that should be protected and even encouraged. And I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, it's it it really is a very very tough issue and I think the reason um look, I mean the studios and the and the 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 networks and you know the production companies, everything that happens with these companies as, especially with the studios and the networks in a lot of ways, very very much so with the with the Hollywood uh studios, uh filmmaker studios is you know everything is predicated on fear, right? The right. the reason why you have no originality is because they want as much as they can sure things because they're beholden to stockholders. So they want to make sure that, you know, for example, that, you know, you could, you could write a script today, you know, about an assassin doing this, that, and the other thing. And it could be brilliant. It could be genius. And it it could be a full blown studio type of film. And every studio likely will pass on it. Because it's not based on any original IP. You could write that same story as a book. That book could sell maybe a thousand copies. You maybe can get five thousand Twitter followers behind it and whatever. And you have a better. And then you can turn it into a script, and you have a better likelihood of getting it sold. That's how ridiculous it is because they, <laughs> it's the way that they think. Okay. Right. So there is this big, big push to protect IP. It really comes down. What everything this whole entire thing comes down to really is. Um, state of mind in a way. And and the reason I say that is because you're right. These fan films have been made forever. Um, some companies look at it like free advertising. They say, wow, why, why wouldn't we want it? Especially if, the, if there's no profiting happen, which is the key thing, of course, right? Sure. There can't be any profiting happening. Um, but if there's no profiting happening and this is helping them their brand get exposure and their IP get exposure to a new audience or re-engage an audience that, you know, maybe has been lying dormant for years because yeah. that's any new material. Um, you have to think to yourself, wow, you know, why, why wouldn't I want that? But yeah. then you look at the other side of this thing and you say, okay, profits are harder than, you know, to come by than ever. Movies are more, exp- well, and this is the studio's fault as well. You know, movies are getting more expensive than ever. The marketing for movies is more expensive than ever. Um, now you have all these streaming outlets, you have all these things going on where the independent movement is certainly back in full swing. Um, independent films and television are stealing eyeballs from studio pictures. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is this you, I know, you know, and one other thing I have to mention is that, you know, you obviously have rampant um, piracy as well. So I think that there is this in this particular case, I think there is this overprotection of the IP simply because they don't want it. Could, and it could be one of two things. And again, I can't pretend to know what goes on in the meetings with the attorneys and everything. But it could be one of two things or both. It could be 
we don't want the, the IP diluted in any way or we don't want the IP inf- you know, infringed upon in any way because we need to protect it for every single thing that we do. And we, mean, we, we need to make sure that every bit of profitability comes from our efforts. Right. I get that as a business guy. I completely get it. I mean, I have, I'm kind of in not a unique position, but um, semi-unique from the standpoint that you know, I run a business, but I'm a creative. And mm-hmm. so I, I see sometimes, you know, when things are infringed upon or have been infringed upon in the past, even like when I said, when I ran the, when the, when I ran the magazine, we had to become litigious because even though I could look at it, you know, from a way of, Hey, you know, this is kind of cool because they're really extending the razor. That was the name of the magazine was razor. They're really kind of extending the razor brand and bringing the razor brand out there. I had to worry about a dilution of the brand how the brand was being presented because you can only control so much. Right. You know what I mean? You really can only control when, when somebody else is kind of using your IP, you know, even if it's in there, even if it's in the, even if it is, there's nothing but good intentions. There is a possibility that it spirals out of the, out of control where you, where, where you can't control any of the messaging or how it's being perceived or what's being done it could splinter off into other things. Somebody else might pick it up and do something else with it. They could, you know, maybe they do a mashup for, with, with that material that kind of, you know, um, uh, sort of the bases, the, you know, the existing IP, the characters and mm-hmm. storylines and everything like that. So I get where they're coming from. It's a very, very tough, uh, it's tough, I'm sure, for the fans to understand it. But I understand why they're doing it. I think right. that there is a way – what I think that – what I do believe is that there is a way to massage it where it doesn't seem so combative and where maybe there could be some sort of win-win in this situation, including CBS controlling that material you know, for uh, – or uh, who else is involved? Is CBS and, and who? Paramount. And Paramount, right. Well, there you go. You know, Massaging it in a way that um, everybody wins. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, I agree with you. It's it, it's it's hard because of all the things that you mentioned. I mean, it almost seems like it's one of those things that you just have to take on a case by case basis. Like it's like it's too like it's too nuanced a topic to have like some kind of blanket policy, which I kind of think you need. You know, here you have a case where a brand has created a history of allowing fan films. Um, and so allowing, so attacking this one seems to go against a, a history that they've kind of created kind of like, you know, I remember, um, learning or hearing that, that you have to protect your trademark. If someone uses your trademark, if you don't historically show that you try to, and to defend it, that you can actually lose a trademark. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, so there's that one thing, but if you've created this history, like on the Star Wars side, where you know they almost encourage fan films. If you create this history where you allow where you allow fan films to to thrive, it seems unfair, and it does seem to be problematic. Where you pinpoint just one for no other reason than that one looks too good, um, and it also kind of makes it a little bit conspicuous that you know with uh, a new pending Star Trek movie coming, and they're talking about a, a Star Trek show. You can't help but wonder, is there's concern about that? I definitely think that's part of it. I, yeah. I think the bigger problem, though, is, I mean, I think the problem is, is like, it, it's too sterile of a response. Like, mm. you know, you can't, look, 
the fans are not going to look at the, the legal side. I'm not talking about the people who made the film, but the people that are, of course, going to defend the filmmakers. Right. You know, they're they're gonna they're not going to look at the legalities or the, or the potential of money loss or the, or you know any of the infringement uh, issues at all. They're just going to say, you know, what a bunch of greedy, you know, <laughs> right. greedy mothers, right? Right. So the you know what for me what it would come down to if I was if I was kind of heading this thing up is I would say, look, this is fine the legal part of it let's let's handle it the way we need to handle it but from a pr standpoint we need to really you know not be so sterile not be so um not look like there's 40 lawyers behind the statement that we're putting out let's go out there and you know make a statement about the quality of the filmmakers and you know and and why why you know why we're doing this get people to understand a little bit better because everything that I've read and everything that I've seen, and I think there were just a couple of articles over the last few days that I saw in the trades. I mean, it's, it's too, it's too, uh, David and Goliath for me. You know, right. it's, it's, there's no reason to be that way, especially in this day and age where perception really is everything and where you can lose the battle on social media and thereby lose a, a legion of fans rather quickly. Mm-hmm. I think it takes tremendous hubris to think that you can't, you know, that you can't lose fans just because of the history of the brand. I definitely think you can. Um, and I don't think it's a game that you really want to play. I think, you know, you want to build your audience, not alienate it. So I think that their response so far has been a little bit sterile and uh, could definitely certainly be massaged in a way. And again, it could probably be even solved in a way that creates a win-win for everybody. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this seems like a case where, you know, one of the places where I think you know, uh, having where an IP holder, for me anyway, and for me personally, how I look at it, it has a stronger case is if someone is doing something with, if a fan film is doing something with the brand or with the characters, that really goes against what the characters have been. So, you know, using the Power Rangers example from a few years ago, love that Power Rangers film that was created by, directed by um, Joseph Kahn. And, um, um and I just thought it was cool, it was gritty. You know, the original Power Rangers I never got into. I thought it was corny and, and silly. And when my son watches it, when he used to watch it, I thought this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Um but you know, one, there wasn't to my knowledge there really wasn't a history of Power Ranger fan films, and that particular one really was not in line with the quote unquote Power Rangers brand. So I could see like I almost understood their case a lot more than this particular case where you have a Star Trek fan film that is obviously made by people who love the brand, who understand the brand. You know, Joseph Kahn made a point to say he never liked Power Rangers. Um, and then in this particular case, they're doing something that easily could fit within the context of the canon world. And, and you know, if I, like, if, you know, if I were heading up Paramount, I would say, is there a way that we could work with these guys and make money from it. Cause you know, the, the almighty dollar is the thing that speaks. And if fans are showing that they like this thing and they raise the million dollars, you know, there seems like there's something there. So I don't know. Well, you nailed it on the head though. You said money speaks and you know, I, ultimately all of these studios are owned by much bigger corporations and there's, you know, stockholders right. to answer to. I mean, it, it's the, it's, it's the shitty thing about the, the film industry in general, especially right. the studio system is that, you know, when the studios were independent, of course they answered to themselves and they were private and their, their profits were private and everything like that. You know, today it's, a, it's a completely different animal. And, 
you know, you have to deal with this PR machine that never, you know, never shuts down. Um, you know, you have to deal with, you know, again, you know, a, a balance sheet and everything else. And it's, it, it makes everything a little bit too corporate for my liking. And, mm-hmm. um, and, it, and it causes situations like this. Now, again, I mean, they could take a page out of every other studio and every other, uh, you know, network out there and everybody else that has been in a situation like this that has allowed a fan film and figure out a way to, you know, make this work. But, uh, you know, this has been their choice thus far. Who knows what they'll bend on it? Like I said, I don't, I don't think it's a, uh, particularly nuanced response at all, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, but who knows that might change that might change with even more fan pressure. Who knows? The one thing I will say is that with cases like this, the thing that usually sways, you know, the bigger entity is when the fans come out in mass. So, you know, if, if, this, you know, if you, if you can crowdsource a huge movement, you know, behind uh, the cause here and force them to give a more nuanced response, you know, that's that's when you start making progress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two more questions. Let you go. I want to be respectful of your time. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, um, real quick, since we were talking about Star Trek and whatnot, um, you know, for you, what makes a good sci fi film? You know, I'm I'm a particular type of sci-fi fan because I'm not it's not my favorite genre, but I do there are a ton of sci-fi films I do love. I, you know, certainly grew up on the uh, you know, the Star Wars and uh, right. you know, and uh, watched when I was, you know, years later, you know, Close Encounters and and things like The Blade Runner and all that. Um I am definitely much more of the cerebral type of sci-fi mm. and even though I do, you know, I enjoyed the 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 new Star Wars movie tremendously actually, but, um, and it had a ton of chase scenes and everything like that. But I love the cerebral sort of sci-fi, um, the ones that really kind of make you think, you know, things like Looper and, and, um, uh, God, I'm even trying to think of ones I've seen recently that I really liked, uh, Ex Machina. Yeah. I yeah. loved, you know, um, that's what does it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're talking about Looper. Have you seen, I can't remember. It's with, have you seen that sci-fi time traveling film with um, Ethan Hawke? Um, Which one was it? Let me see, Ethan Hawke. It was. It came out. When did it come out? I want to say it came out a few years ago. And uh, he plays a. Um, he kind of like plays a time cop, where he goes back in time to to try to stop something from happening, um, and it has. One of the predestination. That's the name of it. Oh no, I didn't see it. If you if you're into sci-fi films that make you think, you need to go rent that today, RB. Okay. I it has the most. It has it. It has the kind of twist that will make your head explode. Really? I kid you not. All right, I'm gonna write it down. Yeah, predestination with Ethan Hawke. Um. When you get there, there are a couple of twists, but when you get to the main twist, it's one of those things that makes your head hurt thinking about it. <laughs> All right. And as a and a guy who's in the cerebral sci-fi, it totally made me think of that when you said that. All right, cool. Uh, I'm yeah, looking yeah. forward to seeing it. Yeah. Uh, lastly, you know, f- you're t- you know going back to early conversation about social media and connecting. Just you know, as the guy who who runs it. What would be your number one tip for someone to effectively use stage 32 
to connect with other creators and to help advance their career? Uh, for me, you know, it's all about, and then it could be stage 32 or it could be any other, uh, platform really in a lot of ways. It, it's all about being a giver first hmm. and a taker second or third. Actually, I always say, ask three questions, you know, ask what you could do three times for somebody before you ask them to do anything for you. I think you need to treat your online interactions the same way you treat your real world interactions. And if you're walking into a room at a conference or even at a, you know, let's say a, a business meeting or whatever, and you're immediately launching into what you, who you are and what you're looking to do and everything like that, you're going to get the same reaction uh, that you will if you do the same thing on social media, which is people are going to tune you out. You need to be able to establish who you are and what you're about through your actions by, by helping people, by contributing. Like, you know, on stage 32, we have a, a, an area called the stage 32 lounge, and it's basically our version of the forums. Every single discipline, whether you're an actor or a screenwriter or a producer or a filmmaker, there there's a forum for you. And what I tell people when they join up is, you know, there are three things that you could do right away to make an impact. One is you can go in and join a conversation uh, and help people. The second thing you could do is simply, very, very simply, if people have posted, you know, let's say a reel or, or uh, some sort of content to, you know, thank them for sharing it, to watch it, to give them some sort of feedback back on it. And then the final thing is to share content because to me, we are what we consume, right? We're, um, it's, it's a reflection. What we consume is a reflection of us. So for example, you know, every morning I read the trades and what I do is I pick out a bunch of articles that I think people will find interesting and I post them on stage 32 and sometimes I'll post some on Twitter. Um, and what I do is I collect a lot of them for a weekend blog that I post every week on stage 32 so that people get a sort of, not only, not only do people get a glimpse into what I like and what I find interesting, but it's also that, People look at it as I am trying to benefit them. I am trying to do something for them that I, you know, give them something that I feel might help them with their careers or, or that they may find interesting or, you know, may hone their craft or help them hone their craft if it's, you know, like a, a tips article, let's say. So to me, it's all about being out there and being selfless as, as a mantra and, um, and as a strategy. And then, uh, you know, once you establish yourself and once you establish who you are, what's going to end up happening is people are going to start asking you about you. You're not going to have to tell them. They're going to come to you and they're going to say, mm -hmm. hey, man, you know, thanks. Tell me about you. What do you got going on? Or right. they're going to look at your profile and see what you've been up to. It, it, that's really the way it works. And that's really the right approach. And if, if you do that, mm -hmm. like, there, you know, I, I get hit up by introverts all the time. They're like, you know, I'm just – afraid to do it. And I'll mention these tips that I just mentioned just now. And they'll come back to me and they'll be like, holy cow, like it, it's the reception is just incredible. And it really is just a matter of putting yourself out there in a way that presents yourself as not being an egotistical idiot, you know, just being a selfless and caring and by the way, this is the key word for everybody mm. that's listening, a collaborative person because even though we might do some stuff in isolation, you know, some of us writers, we write in isolation, everything like that. Eventually, if your art is being made or you are making art, you are going in a film, in, 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 as it relates to film, you are going to be doing it in a collaborative setting. People want to know that you have that in you. And if you present that in the right way, people are going to want to know more about you and people are going to be more inclined to want to work with you or know what you have going on or to check out your reels or to check out your, you know, your, your screenplays or whatever it is. But it all starts with you presenting yourself in a, in a way 
that uh, illustrates the fact that you want to listen first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's sort of two ears, one mouth thing. Yeah, yeah, I think totally with you. Um, what's the next exciting thing you're working on? Well, on the creative side, uh, we have a sc- I have a screenplay in, in uh, pre-production, and I'm just starting to outline another one and producing uh, that other film that we were talking about. And awesome. on the Stage 32 side, I just have, man, there are so many different things going on. We're really expanding our education. We're very proud of, of uh, the education we offer on the site. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I wanted to do from day one. You know, it took us a couple of years to implement it because I wanted to build up the network first. And, you know, but I've been through my connections and, and, you know, all the networking I've done through the years and, and same with my staff, you know, we now work with over 550 executives worldwide, um, you know, working executives to provide education and other services through the site. So we're, you know, in the process of expanding that and bringing a bunch of new features to bear on, uh, on the platform as well. So we're, you know, we're constantly improving it. It's a living, breathing thing to us. So we're always trying to make it better. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of things going on right now. Yeah. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Love the conversation. I could continue talking a lot longer, but uh, I want to let you go. Are you are you in the L.A. area or New York area? Um, I'm from New York, but I'm, I'm, I'm based in L.A. now. We, we Our offices are down in Manhattan Beach. Well, if um, next time we're down there, I'd love to get together and uh, walk into a bar or coffee shop in real life. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> Great. All right, man. Take it easy. Thank you very much, brother. I want to give huge thanks to RB for taking time out of his busy schedule to contribute to our show. I can talk to Rich for hours. In the meantime, hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating review if you like what we're doing here at Radio Film School. Ratings and reviews are the lifeblood of a podcaster on iTunes. So please, help the show out and tell us what you think. You can also find us on Stitcher. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, Song Freedom. Just head on over to songfreedom.com slash radio and unlock a free standard gold-level license worth $30. Also, thanks to Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. Check out their new How to Conduct Remarkable Interview course. Just go to learnstory.org and use the offer code INTERVIEW. And if you're one of the first 50 people to sign up, you'll get a $48 discount and pay only $99. That's learnstory.org. You can follow me on Twitter at DareDreamerFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. That's all for this bonus. As always, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Ciao.